There are dozens of genre film festivals around the world, and we either can't afford or don't have time to go to any of them. We're guessing a lot of you are in the same boat, so on Cinema Smorgasbord Presents Cinema Fantastica, we pick one of these festivals, a year in which it ran, and choose two films that played at the festival to battle against each other. On this episode, we're traveling to the 2010 edition of the controversial Fantastic Fest Film Festival in Austin, Texas, where we'll be checking out two Japanese films, Shun Sono's Cold Fish and Yoshihiro Nakamura's Golden Slumber. <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Fantastica, a trip through time and space to the genre film festivals around the globe. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is my good friend Liam O'Donnell. But today, Liam, we are enemies, as we are tasked with pitting two genre film classics against one another in a battle to see who reigns supreme. How are you doing today, Liam? Oh, man, Doug. I'm I'm pretty good. You know, I got my stitches out of my horrible finger wound. Oh, right. Um, but today... I couldn't find my band. I have a box. I don't know how, if you're like this, Doug, but I have a ton of band-aids in my house, but I only have mm-hmm. one box that has the multiple sizes, so sure. there's more options. Right. And I have somehow misplaced that whole box. I searched my house. I couldn't find it. I don't know where it is, and it's driving me crazy. You need to suffer massive wounds more frequently, so you will uh-huh. have those uh-huh. more on hand. I'm, I, I'm still, because when I had my own hand, uh, mangled by a dog those we bought a lot of, of supplies at that time and we still know where those things are but yeah give it a year i wouldn't know where to find the a large band-aid when i inevitably slice myself with a large knife which is what you did yeah exactly um but yeah i mean i'm glad i don't have an infection it looks gnarly but it doesn't look gross it's like you know what i mean it's like healing up so you know i'm just thankful for that other than that you know it's no longer arctic in the chicago area it's still cold but it's not like I can't go outside cold. So uh, that's giving me just a tiny bit of cheer, just a wee bit, a taste of cheer. The first bit of optimism we've heard from Liam in a very long time. Exactly. (laughs) No, that's right. Liam, today we're going to be talking about the Fantastic Fest Film Festival. And uh, this is one of the festivals that you've actually attended. Is that correct? I have, yes. A friend of the show, recent guest Ed Travis, uh, moved to Austin, Texas, I'm going to say 2004, 2005, mm-hmm. and uh, was there for probably about five years and started going to this fest, and he had been in my ear about it. You should come to Austin. You should come to Austin. Check out this fest. And to me at the time, Doug, around the time that I was in grad school and then graduating from grad school, the idea that I would have the kind of money needed to go on a vacation sounded like some crazy shit. <laughs> like, literally, like, that's... I have to say, in 2021, that sounds like crazy shit to me right this very second. <laughs> oh, it, it is again. But so, so uh, it's funny, we're covering 2010. Uh, in 2011, I was having a conversation with my uh, boss at the time. I was working at a nonprofit called Broad Street Ministry. Uh, I was specifically their arts and culture curator, and I worked in uh, one of their homelessness programs that grew into a larger uh, uh, food program. Anyways, uh, I was talking to my boss at the time, and I had just moved from what was a joke wage, like literally like I wasn't being paid basically, uh, to like – 
actual income, but still not enough. Obviously, I was still poverty wages, but at least it was like it didn't feel illegal anymore. <laughs> right. And so uh, he's like, "Man, you've been working a lot. Like maybe you should take a vacation." He was like, "When was the last time you went on a vacation?" And I was like, "Oh, uh, the year after I graduated from high school, I went to Hawaii for my stepbrother's wedding." And he's like, "Oh, well, you just graduated from high school." I was like. That was 1997. <laughs> so he's like, so you, that's it? And I was like, oh, wait, no, no, no. I went to another wedding in 99 in Alaska. And that's it. I haven't been on vacation since then. And he was like, that's not okay. So I was telling my mom that story, and she's like, you know, I will help you pay for a vacation. And I was like, you will what? And so I got <laughs> I got two weeks off paid. Uh, I mean, again, paid is a joke under these wages but at least it wasn't like <laughs> i wasn't getting paid at all so two weeks off and my mom gave me again not a million dollars but some money to help go and i went to fantastic fest and i not only did i go to fantastic fest doug i went a little early so because fantastic fest kind of moves in a schedule but at this time it lined up perfectly with uh austin city limits right so i got to go go to one day of austin city limits have two days to explore Austin after Austin City Limits, and then Fantastic Fest started. And it was perfect. It was like the one of the best vacations I've ever been on. Did you go by yourself in 2011? I went by myself in 2011 and stayed with Ed Travis. Was that an intimidating thing, or did the fact that you knew someone there, was that, or, or, or were you just okay with traveling by yourself? Incredibly intimidating. I mean, yes and no. The traveling in and of itself is not too bad. Sure. When I went to Alaska to visit my friend Matt Fuller for his wedding, that was solo. And I've done solo things for uh, for conferences. You know, when right. I was working as a – people might not know this, but I worked briefly as a youth pastor. And uh, <laughs> I went to some, some churchy conferences that the churches paid for me to go. It was like part of my continuing education. And that was always solo, and I would just meet people there, and either that was cool or not cool and whatever. So um, – <laughs> Uh, I, I did a lot, and, and even in, in then in grad school, I went to some academic conferences and some social justice conferences. So like the conference experience had already prepared me for solo stuff. And then as far as going to a film fest on my own, um, it wasn't until I moved into Philly and became good friends with Josh, my co-host on Cinepunks, that I had a film fest friend. I used to go to Philly Film Fest almost entirely by myself, occasionally with a date if I could talk a girl into going. Sure. And that was it. So I just went on my own because I wanted – it was the first thing I realized, oh, there's this thing that happens and movies that I end up buying at DVD deals later bootleg play in a theater. So I should go and try to <laughs> see those movies now before I have to pay for the bootleg DVD in the mall. Uh, let's talk about the festival before we get into the movies proper. Sure. Particularly because Fantastic Fest is a little bit more uh, tricky to talk about some, than yes. some of the other festivals that we refer to. Now, a decade ago, Fantastic Fest w for me was the dream. You know, we have uh, the Fantasia Film Festival here in Canada, which itself is a dream for me to go to. But the thing about Fantastic Fest is it not only has the, the same kind of movies, these, these you know, horror, uh, action, exploitation, all that sort of stuff, but I know people who go to it every year. So it would be like this. It, it was every year once Fantastic Fest was happening, which is right after TIFF, I would sometimes go to TIFF, and then there would be this exodus of people to Austin, Texas. And all these people I know from the internet and through podcast, they would all go there, and it all seemed like they were having the best possible time. And so Fantastic Fest became this sort of, this this like idealized version of what a film festival should be, uh, at, you know, and it was taking place at Draft House, which was supposed to be this idealized version of what a movie theater should be. 
It just seemed too good to be true. <laughs> now let, let me talk about let me talk about how Fantastic Fest describes itself on its website. Fantastic Fest is the largest genre film festival in the U.S., specializing in horror, fantasy, sci-fi, action, and just plain fantastic movies from all around the world. The festival is dedicated to championing challenging and thought-provoking cinema, celebrating new voices and new stories from around the world, and supporting new filmmakers. We work with various other festivals, archives, cinematheques, and individuals to spotlight lesser-known film regions, luminaries, and more in an ongoing effort to expand the general knowledge and and appreciation of cinema now one of the things about this festival is that it got like premieres from all over the world it got uh lots of appearances by uh not just people in genre film world but like it it would be star-studded in a way that would be very appealing to film nerds because it was a very film nerd centered festival and then liam a couple of years ago it all came crashing down now do you want to talk a little bit about that Probably Oof. not, but please mm-hmm. tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, basically, um, it was a combination of, it seemed like, a variety of Me Too-related moments where people yes. either directly a part of the festival or connected with the festival had allegations come out against them. Um, and then that encouraged the staff around Alamo and Fantastic Fest to start talking more honestly about how they felt their treatment had been when they pointed out incidences uh, of, you know, sexual harassment, of misconduct. Um, and, and, and really what started to, to come out was a real culture of, you know, you could say misogyny. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, it would also be fair to say uh, um, tolerance of bad behavior. It wasn't just that there were some assholes there. It was that there was a whole culture around excusing and and protecting and even that's That's exactly it yeah 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 and so and and that was all justified by friendships um i I mean i'll straight up say one of my greatest regrets of having been to fantastic fest is not punching harry knowles directly in his fat face uh you know i had so many opportunities to and i already you could just say face i'm just saying sorry you're right um and and i and i just you know what's crazy is so many people i know already didn't like him Mm -hmm. but He was the powerful because he was there at the cusp of online film, quote unquote, criticism. He was the face of it, like literally the face in in the sense that his website had his face as a cartoon in the corner and still does, I think that that like he was seen as the symbol, even at, at, you know, the point when this happened, Andy Cool News was no longer the center of film criticism online, but he still was the guy. And and uh, and Devin Faraci was one of those guys as well. And the fact is they were. Because they were seen as that, they were given both a lot of access, but also a lot of privilege, and they definitely seemed to take advantage of those things. I mean, I remember the, I was at the Fantastic Fest where Devin Faraci did the Fantastic Debates and got just beat up by Joe, Joe Swanberg, just mm-hmm. totally embarrassed. And I was openly laughing about it. I thought that was <laughs> fucking great. And there were people who were seriously concerned, like, well, that's disrespectful, whatever, you know, poor Devin. Like, he didn't he didn't know that Joe Swanberg was actually going to punch him hard. And I was like, what is going on right now? And then some of those same people were jumping on the bandwagon when it turned out that he was also uh, a sex pest. And so, like, it's I mean, what just... it, I think one of the things, sorry to interrupt you, Liam, but particularly with that example and with Harry as well, what it really, even at, even now, we excuse people in this community who are assholes because, not just because of the access they have, but because they sometimes are great writers, right? And we let great sure. writers get away. I mean, with you can't say assholes. that about Harry, though, because Harry's always 
there, th- this is what's so frustrating about the Harry aspect is other than Buttonamathon, which I get was a very cool experience for certain people, and they ad- endeared him to them. Um, he's never been good at anything. Like no. his writing is bad, his yes. criticism is bad, and he's been a misogynist before we knew he was acting on it in the real world. Mm-hmm. His writing was like. His basically some of his reviews are sexual assault. Like, let's just be clear. Like, he is dehumanizing the women all over the place. But then when we found out he was doing it in real life, suddenly it was like, oh my god, oh, uh, oh wow, you know. And then you know, and then of course there were the people who always thought he was probably terrible. And so having that confirmation, like, let people unleash. And the reality is about Fantastic Fest, and, and I experienced this since I first went, is that with any community of nerds, it's also a click. It's not just an open door for all people. Right. Mm-hmm. That there are some people there, and you could argue maybe they're not in the spirit of the fest or whatever, but there are definitely some people there who are part of a group of cool people. And so uh, it wasn't just the controversy itself, because I think if it was just the controversy itself, it would have moved on a little quicker. It mm-hmm. was the controversy combined with years of resentment and frustration of like, you guys have always sort of had a certain attitude, and then to find out that that attitude allowed you to defend abusers, uh, and maybe not everywhere. I mean, some of the allegations are 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 not that, but the idea that you were defending people and not defending people who needed your defense, it like those things combined, and it became a a, a deal. And yeah. and I think part of the issue there is that the efforts made, at least initially, because I think some people that I respect are now a part of the effort to reform Fantastic Fest, Mm -hmm. but it took years, it felt like, for them to actually make solid steps towards changing the actual environment and ecology of that place. And so, you know, there was a couple years where people were still going, knowing full well the weight of the allegations about the people who ran the fest. The, the clickiness of it is something I wasn't really necessarily aware of since I was so distanced from it. But I sure. do know that there, there's been a film critic who we've had on Cinema Smorgasbord recently who really, when that thing was going down, he just let me know, and really talented film critic too, you know, how his experience with it. And it really made things a lot more uh, clear regarding how that right. sort of thing happened. But I have to say, one of the things I most remember about that whole thing breaking down were people in that click who initially circled the wagons, right? That they right. were like protecting this and you saw it happen. And some of those people later became the people who were like, oh, I'm at the forefront of condemning this. But their initial reaction, and again, I'm not uh, criticizing for this necessarily. Sometimes that's part of being in a clique is that you you know, you know, are not going to believe these things. And I'm not saying they were uh, intentionally protecting them. But I mean, there was a lot of that going around. And there are certain people who I lost an incredible amount of respect for immediately afterwards, because they wouldn't take it seriously, particularly when it comes to Mm -hmm. the Tim League stuff around the abusive nature of working within uh, the larger uh, Alamo draft house uh, type deal, because people people were like, like, laughing about it, or like this. And you know why? Because they loved going to Fantastic Fest, and they yep. loved going to the Draft House, and the idea of not doing that anymore, they would rather tolerate a certain level, I think hopefully I would say, a certain level of abuse and shitty behavior if it means that they continue to do that stuff. Well, and I think it's worth noting, too, um, A, a lot of that stuff that was a real problem, right, was also happening at a time where the company was starting to get more corporate. And so um, it's it's a little muddy in the sense of like um, Alamo is slowly becoming 
and this is from uh, friends of the show who work there and then no longer work there is slowly becoming not the thing that everyone was so in love with anyway. So like my attitude towards the people who were like kind of ready to die on a hill for, for Alamo is like, Hey guys, like inevitably this culture that you're seeing where they aren't taking the complaints of these individuals seriously, it's going to spread out. And the whole thing is, is going to be rotten. And now, you know, the the sorts of things that they've been doing like taking loan taking the ppp loan and not paying people uh and laying people off anyway and um really changing some of the programming mandates and closing some of their you know, more, more interesting theaters and really starting to like push the whole uh, organization towards something a little more palatable to the mainstream. It's kind of against all the things that people said made them so great. I mean, yeah, they're still mean to people who talk and you know, whatever, I'm actually okay with that. But uh, but the idea that like, well, this is just like the sanctuary. I think a lot of other indie theaters have been showing like, we don't, it doesn't have to be them. Like right. we could do what they're doing. I mean, just look at the Nighthawk in Brooklyn. And again, I'm saying Brooklyn, but you know, let's acknowledge that it's hard to open someplace like Alamo or Nighthawk in the middle of nowhere. Like, right. uh, you know, some folks, that's just the reality of where you live. But I think in a city, you could do something like what Alamo is doing and do okay, and it doesn't have to be like without Alamo, we're lost forever. Uh, I uh, I don't want to discount the fact that there have been lots of people, uh, mostly female led, who are trying to rehabilitate uh, the image of Fantastic Fest, and not just the image by actually doing the work and trying to root out the cause a lot of, of a lot of these issues. Vanity Fair did a article as sort of a follow up. Uh, about a year and a half ago that that talked about some of the changes that have been made. They, there does seem to have been a lot of positive changes, but there is a part of me that thinks that the rot at the core is still there. And you see the people who are at the center of a lot of these controversies, their heads keep pop popping out of the ground and they're just trying to go back into the positions that they were. I mean, Ain't It Cool News is still out there. It's still running and Harry Knowles still writes for it. So it's, it's you know, th this goes kind of goes down to the idea of what, <laughs> that, that I mean, it's impossible to cancel people <laughs> for real anyway. I mean, I'm not going to get on a righteous horse about it. I was very torn when all this stuff was happening. I was more than willing to condemn people, but the idea that I would never go to Fantastic Fest again was not even on the on the table. I just really couldn't go, you know, but I thought maybe even with all this stuff going on, I still want to go. It was the when Devin Faraci wasn't actually let go and he got credit for writing stuff in the right. Fantastic Fest mm -hmm. write-up thing a year later. That was, I think, the straw that broke a lot of people's backs. That for for people who were pretty forgiving and pretty non-judgmental, that was proof that it was all about taking care of your friends. Well, your friend fucked up. You know what I mean? And like the reality is if he doesn't have any other skills where he can't possibly live without writing for you, then like that's his problem. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like he could get a job, you know, like I don't have a job right now. You yeah, know what I mean? Me like, either. <laughs> yeah. So like the idea that like, well, I had to get him to write for us. What else could he do? He could get a job somewhere else. He could just get another job. That happens. And so he like, never did, by the way. He, now he has a Patreon that I side eye every person who's listed as contributing to that Patreon. Oh my God. Do people actually contribute to his Patreon? Lots of people that you know contribute to that. Fuck. I don't want to know, actually, because I just, yeah. I'm not ready to start. I mean, here's the thing, Doug. I want to go back to on one hand, my three trips to Fantastic Fest were great, and they were some of the best movie experiences I've had. Though I'll be honest, I also enjoy our trip to Cinepocalypse where we talked to Eric Roberts. So that's <laughs> that's pretty up there as well. Um, but I did have a great time and I met, honestly, this is the thing, Doug. 
if it wasn't for Fantastic Fest, I wouldn't know anyone on film Twitter. Right. Like literally, Phil was the only person I knew. Phil, uh, now uh, editor of Fangoria, he was like the only film person I could find from Philly. So like I connected with him on Twitter and then at Fantastic Fest, he introduced himself to me and then we've been, you know, not best friends or anything, but I've known him for a while because of that. Everyone else I know related to film stuff happened because of Fantastic Fest. That's where I met them. So I like, I want to take all that seriously. However, some of those folks who I met turned out to be my least favorite people on Twitter, and I eventually <laughs> disconnected with them because what I found immediately when I first started interacting with film Twitter, and everyone should keep in mind this was during the Obama period, so this was before the explosion of, of wokeness during the Trump administration. So during the Obama administration, the general feeling was like film Twitter is not a place for politics. And so like that's not – you know that's what I studied. That's what I was working in. I was sure. advocating – at the time I was at a homelessness – a nonprofit, and if you're working with people who are in need, you're inevitably going to have political takes about money and the society, and that was not fucking welcome, dude. It was hostile towards. I was literally, I was told at Fantastic Fest by people that I still like that my online presence was annoying, and 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 now to be <laughs> fair, some of that they were like, oh, because you're not funny, and I was like, okay, I'm okay with that, but a couple people were like, oh, I'm just sick of all the politics now. One or two of those people, Trump got into office and suddenly they became leftists. Right, so, uh, you know, right, right. which is great. I'm glad everyone grows sure. up. But I'm, I'm just saying, when I first entered that community, Doug, it, 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 there were already signs that it wasn't exactly aware of itself and it wasn't exactly aware of how the world works. So the fact that they got caught in this way that, like, oh no, a bunch of us have been bad and we don't know what to do about it. I wasn't that surprised because I'm like, well, y'all don't like to have these conversations. Like it's it's not welcome to talk about this stuff. So no wonder you're not ready to deal with this. Uh, I just want to mention that the reason we haven't covered Fantastic Fest on Cinema Fantastica earlier is simply because of our conflicted feelings regarding promoting it in any way because of this conflict. I feel right. like that it was important for us to provide this context as we go forward. This doesn't really um, play into the discussions of the movies we're going to talk about. No. But in terms of whether you yourself, listener, feel like you should be going to Fantastic Fest, hey, it, it's important to do the research. Uh, you can. There are lots of people who believe they've cleaned up their act. There's lots of people who believe that it was all lip service and the problems still run just as deep as before. Uh, I'm not going to make a judgment on that necessarily. Uh, though I have, I I think you can tell where Liam and I uh, land in regards to our feelings about how this whole thing went down. I do want to talk, Liam, about the 2010 festival, which is what we're talking about in Cinema Fantastica, which ran sure. from September 23rd to the 30th, 2010, and had a whole lot of films. That's the other thing. There's just a overwhelming number of films that play. No, they, they it's an unbelievable lineup every year. Yeah. And in fact, the lineups, I think, have improved significantly since 2010, which was already, you know, really interesting, particularly when it comes to the international selection that you see there. Uh, just a few of the films that played uh, in terms of world premieres. They had uh, Troll Hunter, for those who've seen that movie, uh, the found footage film. The action movie Red, Yun Wu Ping's True Legend, Sharktopus, was there with Eric Roberts, uh, premiered at Fantastic Fest. The uh, 30 Days of Night uh, sequel, as well as international premieres of Ang Bak 3, Norwegian Ninja, which, uh, which won a, a bunch of awards at there, uh, as well as U.S. premieres of things like A Horrible Way to Die. Uh, the, of course, the movies that we're talking about today, Cold Fish was there. Um, I Spit on Your Grave, the remake. I Saw the Devil, Rare Exports. A lot of films that since then have become very well known. They the, A lot of the 
conversation around them and the larger con uh, conversations that led to distribution happen at Fantastic Fest, which is why it's such a popular festival. Liam, anything from this list of films that premiered or, or, or showed at Fantastic Fest that jump out at you? Um, well, just the, there's a couple of um, things in there that I'm not a big fan of, but I could imagine in 2010, I would still have gone to see them because I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like, there are things that turned out to be disappointing, but at the time sure. I would have been excited about. Like, you know, the one year I went, they had the Red Dawn premiere, right? Uh, leading up to that premiere, I thought it would be cool. And then it turned right. out. It was bad. So like, <laughs> but you don't know that, right? And and I, I, as much as I kind of think it's it's a little embarrassing, a couple of the things, it, you know, you don't know that at the time. And it's cool that they take a chance on stuff and maybe they bet on the wrong thing sometimes, but that's going to be true of any fest, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I've been to, and that's one of the hard things about going to a festival is that you really got to do your research sometimes. At least, yeah. I, like there's a lot of great movies that play at Fantastic Fest, and then there's a few that are going to be disappointments, and then there's going to be a couple that are just going to be straight up garbage. It's just always going to happen. I uh, I've been to a few Midnight Madness screenings for the Toronto International Film Festival, where I went in, you know, paid my twenty bucks for a ticket, sat down, and it's just the worst piece of shit. Uh, and it it just it's very deflating. But I will say that it means that your response to it is a lot angrier than it would have been if you just happened to pull it up on Netflix or something sure. like that. <laughs> well, that also happens with excitement, right? Being at a theater where you're seeing this thing for the first time and no one else has seen it and it's a total surprise and you feel like so honored. Sometimes that can make something that's not the best thing seem like the best thing in the world. And then later you watch it at home and you're like, that's all right. It's, yeah. it's not, you know, <laughs> Liam, we've, we've had a lengthy discussion about the festival, which is great. That's what this uh, podcast is about, but it's time for us to turn and talk about two of the movies. We're going to talk today about golden slumber. Uh, you're going to talk about that. And I'm going to talk about cold fish right after this. <laughs> The lives of a bored suburban couple are changed forever when a seemingly nice old man gives their daughter a job at his fish store, and soon his gruesome hobbies are brought to light. It's 2010's Cold Fish, directed by Sean Sono, the director of Suicide Club, as you mentioned before, Liam, as well as Strange Circus, the lengthy love exposure, and one of my favorite films, Why Don't You Play in Hell, as well as the upcoming Prisoners of the Ghostland, starring Nicolas Cage, uh, written by Sean Sono, as well as Yoshiki Takahashi, who's best known as a poster designer. He actually designed the poster for Why Don't You Play in Hell, as well as a lot of kind of recognizable exploitation films from Japan over the past 15, 20 years or so, include things like Machine Girl, uh, Mutant Girl Squad, things like that. He has a uh, film coming up called Rageaholic that he directed that I'm actually very curious about. Starring Mitsuru Fukuyoshi uh, as the lead as a kind of nebbish, regular uh, small fish store owner, uh, as well as Denden, who I have seen in other films playing like very genial characters as the very interesting Murata, uh, who is 
a complete psychopath in this movie. We have Shinsono's real life wife playing uh, Shimoto, the lead's uh, wife in the film. And we have Asuka Kurosawa playing Aiko, who is uh, uh, Murata's wife in the film. And we'll get into some of the confusingness of the plot in just a little bit. Liam, before we actually get into the movie proper, I want you to talk a little bit about your experience with Shinsono as a director. As I said before, I saw at the Toronto International Film Festival, Why Don't You Play in Hell, which is this two and a half hour uh, ode to low budget filmmaking and violence and uh, <laughs> and so much more romance uh, and musical. I mean, there's just so much to it um, that I just absolutely adore. I know not everyone feels that same way. Well, I um, saw Suicide Club way before I knew about him as a director like like I, I wasn't looking for him that was just one of those movies and it was really an entrance into the extreme Japanese cinema you know what I mean like it was part of that time where me and my friends got the bootleg DVD of Versus and after seeing Versus we wanted more Japanese films that weren't what we had been watching before which was mostly like classic stuff or anime and so we were looking for these things and suicide club was just one of the first ones that we found and i remember the first time i watched suicide club i just was upset by it and i didn't understand it and i just was like what the fuck is going on here and it was only on rewatch later on in life that i would i really kind of vibed with it and understood it um and so it was with great surprise that i realized after basically in the theater falling in love with why don't you play in hell in fact speaking of uh fantastic fest i signed up for the early draft house films thing uh club because they were putting out why don't you play in hell and you could sign up and they would send you a blu-ray of all the movies right. they were putting mm-hmm. out and i wanted that why don't you play in hell blu-ray um <laughs> i fucking love that movie and it was only later i realized oh this is the suicide club guy and then um i was writing for synapse uh, again bringing up ed travis again uh when i was writing for him we did they they still do actually if people want to submit for it a weekly film club called two sets that i actually started with uh ed and austin uh vashaw over there and uh it's being now run by uh brendan foley who's a friend of the show as well and uh um one we picked cold fish and I had never seen it, but it was suggested. So I was like, let's do it. And I was so not into it, Doug. It it, it <laughs> hit me in such a way that I could not understand it. And I wrote it off. I was very upset about it, actually. And then I wrote it off as like, this is like Suicide Club. I probably need to sit with this more and watch it again. And maybe at some point it'll click for me. Um, but it has made me feel weird about him as a director because obviously he does some things that I think are magical, but I haven't like dug very deeply into his films you know what i mean i've probably seen like five um and i'm nervous to start just going crazy like let's do a deep dive on sono because i'm worried uh, this might be a hit or miss it might be every other movie like who knows right. like i might mm-hmm. be at a 50 percent ratio and that could actually be a real torturous deep dive you know particularly because his films tend to be quite long uh, yes. have you ever have you ever seen love exposure I have not. It was recommended to me by a friend of the show, Adriana Gover, but I haven't gotten a chance to sit down with it yet. People who, who are aware of that film know that it's it's oh, it's like four and a half hours long. I think there's actually a TV version of it that's even longer than that. Um, and this is a director who does not show a lot of restraint in his work. And for me, that can sometimes be extremely exciting. And then other times it can be very frustrating. And when it comes to Cold Fish, I'm struggling with how I feel about this movie. 
And I talked to Liam a bit before we started recording to try to kind of get a handle on it. I do like it. I, I do think that there's lots to like in here, but I think that it would be a mistake to not acknowledge the things that I find troublesome with this movie. I think both Liam and myself worry that we're not getting everything in here because there, it's a very Japanese movie at its core, uh, because of course it's Japanese, but also there's something that is trying to be communicated that we're not necessarily fully picking up on, though I think that I took away a more uh, universal message from it that maybe something that is that you're not uh, feeling that's necessarily being broadcast in this movie. I mean, okay, so it, it, we should probably just jump in here. Yeah, with absolutely. Both feet. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that um, it's a very cold movie, LOL. Um, <laughs> and it features uh, the most interesting characters are the most awful characters. And our protagonist, he just seems very emotionally shut off. Yes. And he's put through all manner of. Uh, gross things, basically. Literally two um, hours of, of complete emotional and physical torture. Yeah. And then he snaps and turns a corner, and that release, that catharsis for him, involves a fair amount of uh, not just violence, but domestic abuse and rape. Yes. And that is unpleasant, and I don't enjoy that per se. And then the way the film ends, one could either there's just it feels like there's a few ways to read that ending and i'm not sure that it uh justifies for me the levels of unpleasantness i've been asked to put up with for the rest of the film um not that the skill of the film is bad the performances or the script all of it is good but i just don't know if it's worth me experiencing these things i don't know where it's leading me and then when it ends i find myself suspecting that um, it's not just about the idea that, like, in order to succeed in capitalism, generally, one must be inhuman, though I think that's part of it. I think that this is not totally justified by the events we see. I think it's there's something going on with faith. The, the, there's something about the murder cabin being covered in Christian iconography. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the fact that our villain basically has a story that we basically hear him mutter about as he's dying of yeah. being raped by his father for being bad. Though there's suggestions about that earlier in the film as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it gets very explicit. So we know yes. he's not li- he He could be lying about anything up to that point. Mm-hmm. But when he is, you know, as he's dying, you know, reliving these memories, you know that they must be real. Um, I just think there's more going on here, especially knowing a little bit about the socioeconomic stuff going on in Japan, about the ways that the business culture has treated folks, about the whole phenomena of people withdrawing from society. Um, Sort of, you know, recently on uh, Behind the Bastards, they started talking about the birth of the incel and men's rights Mm -hmm. rights movement and the relationships that those have to other internet phenomena. And really you could see a lot of similarities in the 90s leading into the 2000s with what was going on in Japan with people sort of withdrawing from society and, um, you know, men deciding that they're going to be completely alone and whatever, all these sort of weird things. And so I feel like the political, social, and specifically gender aspects of what's going on here are – not inscrutable. I think with a certain amount of insight, uh, I could connect with what's being talked about in this movie, even if I still find it in some ways a little too unpleasant to fully enjoy. I could still 
reach an appreciation for the film. Uh, but I had the experience that you had, Doug, which is when I look to other critics to help me with insight, to see what their mm-hmm. takes on the movie is. The takes either seem to be, this movie is trash, or this movie kicks ass. Yes. And I find both of those evaluations lacking a certain amount of context to help me understand what's going on in this movie. It, it, I would almost accept those responses if the movie didn't present itself as um, treading over very serious subject matter in a way that at least invited the potential for nuance in the discussion. But yeah, that's one of the things I found. I looked at, I don't usually look at a lot of reviews because for the obvious reasons, I just don't want to repeat what reviews are saying. But for this one, because I was feeling so conflicted, I read some and a lot of them were, oh, it's so gory, it's so awesome. Sono is is made his masterpiece, but they don't talk about anything. They don't talk about the fact that the women are treated like shit in this movie and that there's a consistent, you know, theme of sexual violence all throughout it and the kind of denouement with the character making this switch and I, again i apologize for the uh for anyone who hasn't seen it we're not going to go into too much detail i mean you're going to guess right from the beginning that this character eventually is going to snap but what happens afterwards i mean it's incredibly unpleasant to watch the movie that this reminded me the most of and a movie that often it gets compared to is Takeshi Miike's Visitor Q, which is also a film that goes into very extreme territory regarding what the Japanese family dynamic actually is compared to what it presents to the world. And I do think that that's what it's trying to explore, right? The idea that this this grouping, this husband and wife and daughter, that they're that from the outset they look maybe just like a boring group but there's so much going on psychologically, there's so much drama that they're not dealing with, that when someone comes in to their world and just explodes it by making them have to face everything that they're not talking about, because this person is just openly and almost uh, uh, enthusiastically talking about the most gross and taboo shit, that it's going to destroy their world because if they come to face to face with the reality of their situation and even the reality of their world as a whole, that they can't even they wouldn't even be able to function in that. Um, it, it 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 is something that I'm looking forward to. I think it's a weird way to put it since this movie is so unpleasant. I am going to revisit it th- this movie, and it's one of those movies that I feel like five years from now you could revisit and maybe you'd love it because you finally like something clicks in your brain or you might hate it. I will say at this point, I'm just gonna say I I really, I, I trust Sono enough as a director to think right. that there is there is something here and the uh, technical side of things in terms of the performances, in terms of the direction are so good that uh, even though I'm hesitant to say it kicks ass, it is something that I feel like fits into his filmography and it's still worthwhile to check out. Though that said, this does, um, revel in the excesses that Sono tends to. This movie's two and a half hours long, and it at the end of it, you will feel like you've gone through a two and a half hour experience. Well, I do think it's worth pointing out. So my first thought is about the treatment of the women. And it's just, you know, he, the main character's wife, right? Who, as you said, is played by Sono's wife. Uh, and, um, and then the sort of villainous female character who's married to our sort of criminal old man. Um, it, the movie really does seem to suggest that, like, if an old man is mean to you and grabs your breasts, you're going to want to have sex with them, and that's like the 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 seduction technique, and it's it's pretty demeaning, right? However, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I don't agree that that's what the movie is trying to say. To me, he's but, like he. This guy is a, more of a force of nature than he is even a human I being. I guess it, it, it would be like a celebrity walked in and right, and who's that he just has sure. a, a charisma. That right, her resistance is even but, based but less a, on 
please, yeah. But there's a strong suggestion that the evil wife, even though she knows they're going to murder him, still is kind of cool with what's with the lawyer guy. Um, she's playing it up to mess with Murata, but the film kind of suggests like she doesn't mind this creepy old lawyer guy that much. She's manipulating him, but it's like it's kind of okay. I don't know. I I really started to feel like it was a pretty shitty film when it came to how women were portrayed. Then I, I, really... I by the way, sorry to interrupt, just simply because it's, this speaks to your point. My interpretation of the ending was that it added another layer to her, just like it added to Murata, in that she is. Like there's an element of Stockholm syndrome. She's been abused right. so heavily right. that totally. she basically, you know, she, like she it, almost gleefully participates in the violence at the end of the movie. Right. But she turns on a dime to snuggle up to a corpse. Right. I mean, it, it right. seems like very much like that she has been so damaged yes. psychologically. Right. But I think, but I think the idea is that like that there is no female character that doesn't have something going on that is. Um, difficult uh i think for a modern audience to connect to yeah however i found myself actually on this viewing feeling sympathetic towards the daughter and i think it's kind of important that like really the only thing we see her do uh, you know she's mean to her dad but fuck that i don't care about that well she beats the, the shit out of the stepmother that's too, what i was gonna right? say that's yeah. the but that's it though doug it's the one thing she does yeah, I guess she stole from a store, but I don't care about that either. Yeah, okay. <laughs> she 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 beats up her stepmother, and the suggestion we get is that this is, um, this is part of her grief towards her mom, who by the way doesn't get to live on screen, yeah. and so it's like worth noting that you know she is she's dealing with her own grief to a certain extent, and then at the end, you know, uh, it is very true that suicide is a part of Japanese culture, and I think that that is complicated and i don't know enough about it to make a strong uh comment on it as a phenomena but i think it's true within the context of the film that his suicide is meant to have an impact on her it's meant to teach her a lesson and the idea of her turning on him at the end and just kicking his corpse and saying he's a fucking idiot i felt like was a powerful statement within a culture that takes suicide and sacrificial uh, you know th- this idea of the personal sacrifice very seriously because she completely disrespects that it has no yes. impact on her it, mm-hmm. it, it it means nothing to her and it's almost a feeling I got it was the first place where I got the idea Doug that there's something going on here where um, the generation that is in charge because she's that's what separates her from these people are this roiling pot of emotions and uh, and suppressed emotions and violence and desire and whatever. And then she's just going to be herself and who she is might be completely disrespectful to the past in front of her, but she's at least going to be free of it. That his, you know, classic, because his suicide in a sense reminds us of all manner of narratives in which suicide is the last word. You've, you almost win with that kind of suicide. It's almost like your final comment on on the events of the movie he's sort of wrapping it all up of like this is how it is and this is what the world's to be and she does not give a yeah. fuck it's yeah honestly... if she, if she dropped to her knees and started crying on his corpse the, right. the whole message of the movie right. would be kind of upended yeah, yeah yeah i almost feel like it's the one moment of the film that feels hopeful for me is that she's like no nah, fuck you <laughs> and I'm, i i i don't know it's one of the it's it's honestly of all the 
good things in the movie, which there's amazing performances. There's really some really very funny moments. There's, of course, the gore, which is great. Yeah, for we haven't really people. mentioned this is a dark comedy, and very clearly yes, so yes. as you're watching it. Yeah. But that one moment made me go, I think he's going for more than just the grimness of what happens to um, uh, uh, the main character. I don't think that's the point in and of itself. I think her response sort of puts a spin on that. Now, do I, could I break that down for you perfectly? No, but it's the first inclination I got of, I think there's more here if I could really get at it. It's some of the iconography on the poster for Cold Fish brings to mind intentionally Sam Peckinpah's uh, Straw Dogs, which is also, which is about a very similar thematic thing about a character who's pushed to the limit and responds in a very violent manner. I don't know if it's meant to have the same message. I don't think it does. One of the things I don't like about Straw Dogs, even though I like Peckinpah as a director, is the idea that there's only one way to live and be a man. And if you're not that, then you are uh, leaving your family open to be in some way destroyed or molested or, or killed or whatever, that, that you can't protect them without manning up, so to speak. And what that looks like has only one uh, definition. I do think that this movie, you know, it, it goes to even more extremes. You know, Dustin Hoffman in Straw Dogs is nothing compared to Shimoto in this movie, who is almost a non-entity, right? He barely exists in his own world. He doesn't respond to anything. Even his fish shop, which we're told, you know, it's not as successful as Murata's fish shop. Yeah, no shit. We don't see any customers in that the entire fucking movie. Like, not one customer. He, he's even told, We're even told that his wife basically runs that, that shop. So he's, he, he's kind of a bystander in his own life. And then the response compared to Straw Dogs is also exaggerated to this unbelievable degree where he doesn't just respond violently, that he becomes a psychopath and has to kill and abuse everything in his life, that he becomes like a literal monster. In some way, I think it's like a parody of Straw Dogs, but I don't know if that necessarily comes off clearly. And maybe again, that might be because of our distance from the the, the kind of um, what it's trying to comment on in terms of Japanese society. Kind of notably, Sono did a lot of his schooling in film in the US. So his perspective on Japan, it comes from the from someone who sees himself not only as an outsider because of his uh, attitudes, but also as someone who was able to leave and come back and see it from that outsider perspective. And I think that that is what I find very interesting about a lot of his films, that he takes that larger view of what people see Japan as, but also what the Japanese see themselves as. as. And I think The Suicide at the End is a good mm -hmm. example of that. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's there is always a critique there. I mean, even the movie itself is by being a dark comedy and having the like I'm not surprised when people even though I don't agree, I'm not surprised when people see this movie and they don't take the violence entirely seriously. Right. Like there's there's some people who when he loses it at the end and is a monster towards his daughter and his wife, they take that as like a caricature. They don't take that as reality. Uh, and, and and I don't see it that way, but I get it because of the vibe and the tone of the film. The whole thing is that, I mean, the first thing he does with his new business partner is dispose of a body. So yeah. clearly we're in another fucking world. At the same time, I'm not sure that that justifies that stuff in the film. And it makes me uncomfortable. And again, I'm not one of those people who's like, I can never have that kind of stuff portrayed in a film. Like I'm not, I don't mean this to be a moral argument. Like Sono has, you know, gone too far in portraying these things in a film. I just don't know why we're at that point or if I, right. 
if I'm following him completely about why we're at that point, I guess what I want to say. So I want to put it like it might be his directing or it might be my interpretation. And I'm unwilling to point a finger in that sense. I'm just saying my experience of it is I'm not sure how I feel about this movie. Again, compared to his other movies, the ones I've seen that I really love. It's uh, I find it the funny thing about our conversations sometimes is the idea at the end that we sometimes discuss, and I usually bring it up, whether you'd recommend a movie to someone. And when I think about whether I'm going to recommend a mo- the movie, I, I wouldn't recommend this to a general audience, but then a general audience wouldn't necessarily ever be drawn to a movie called Coldfish anyway. This is an extremely violent, uh, extremely disturbing two and a half hour movie full of violence, full of rape full of abuse, full of characters being broken down to their various elements. If any of that sounds appealing to you and you like to think about the entertainment that you consume, which I think that if you're listening to this right now that you probably do, then yeah, I think you should see it and determine for yourself. I think that I trust the director enough and I like his work generally enough to say to you as a listener, check it out. I think you will find it worthwhile to at least think about But I will say that's a big investment. Two and a half hours is a lot of time. And if you're an hour in and you're thinking, you know what, this isn't for me, you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you included the note here that Sono wants to depict a sense of total hopelessness in his own words. Um, Not everyone is excited about that. Uh, yeah. But I would even say to people who are, because I'm kind of into that a little bit. Though so I, I, like, I'm, I know it's controversial now, but I still love Von Trier a lot. And his yes. work tends to really wallow in that. Yes. and I, But I think it's the same with Von Trier. You know, I think there are Von Trier movies that I'm willing to defend and say, I don't think this goes too far. But there are Von Trier movies that I, if someone's like, that's just awful. I don't I'm like, yeah, you're probably right, you know. Yeah. Whether whether I enjoy them or not, I could see why you feel that way. That's how I feel about this. I think for for folks for whom me describing what didn't work for me makes them curious to see it, you should see it cuz I think you might really like it. And a lot of people I know love this movie like it's one of their favorites. Um for me it didn't work. And I think for people, you know, my co-host Josh uh over at Cinepunks there's certain stuff he just doesn't get it. It's not for him. You know, only only in certain cases can Josh tolerate sexual violence in a movie. Right. It has to be handled a certain way. And even then, some of his he has some movies that he really loves that have even just suggested sexual violence that makes him uncomfortable, even though he thinks the rest of the movie is great. Uh, I would never, I would literally say to him, never watch this movie. I wouldn't say that to him directly because if I did, he'd probably watch it because that's who he is. But <laughs> but I would say, I don't know, maybe you should check it out. And then he would never check it out. And then that would be a good thing. Uh, my uh, my wife, who who doesn't like a lot of like extremely violent movies and kind of cultish exploitation movies, she just does not dig that vibe at all. She did go to the Toronto International Film Festival with me. And quite wearily, we were sitting down to watch Why Don't You Play in Hell? And just as the lights went down, I, I leaned over to her and said, this movie's two and a half hours long. She said, what? And then the movie started, and she loved it. She loved it. And we've watched it several times together since. She just really dug it. And so I was talking about this movie yesterday, and I said to her, I'm like, I saw another film from that director. It's also really long. And she perked up like she might be interested in seeing it. And my response was, you will not like this movie. And that is, that that there's a key there, right? Uh, which isn't just, hey, if you like, why, why don't you play in hell? You might not like this. There's the content in here. If you know the kind of person who would just not be able to vibe with this at all, then then 
honestly at this point we shouldn't even have to warn you just our discussion would probably have warned you off of it this is a movie that is not for everyone by design <sighs> yeah i think that's fair <laughs> are you exasperated by that very idea <laughs> no not at all i just uh, we we've spent we've been talking a lot on this episode doug and so uh you know i know we still have one more movie to discuss so i want to transition but I, but i feel like you could do a full hour and a half just on this movie and Absolutely. feel like you hadn't covered everything. Well, that is uh, Cold Fish from the year 2010. Very commonly available. Very easy. I, I always, I'm amazed by how disturbing films are so easy to get your hands on these days. A film that's less easy to track down is 2010's Golden Slumber, recently remade uh, in Korea. But the original, hard to find. Is, uh, is it because it's not any good? Let's talk about it right after this. <laughs> とにかく逃げて生きろ。息子さんを信じたい気持ちも分かる。俺だけ詳しいんだよ。あいつは犯人じゃない。死刑で撃ち当てない。俺にとって残された武器は人を信頼することだけだから。ゴールデンスランパー
and one of them is like an ex like crime boss and you know one of them is a is a pop star that that he helped at one point and it is just this amazing uh series of events that then comes full circle at the end and it ends with this moment of hope that it's it's a really beautifully constructed movie and it's beautifully constructed in a similar way that fish story is i have not seen a boy in a samurai but i have seen fish story and if you love that movie then you'll probably really dig this one as well it's it's the the kind of general concept is so kind of um it feels like an american movie you know like someone tried to kill the president you've been accused of it but this movie has a much lighter touch than you might expect considering that that's what its kind of central conceit is and the character uh masahiro ayoagi played by masato sakai in the movie he's so genial and likable that you just want him to succeed but mm -hmm. like you'll be halfway through the movie it's like there's no way this guy's gonna get out of this <laughs> <laughs> and honestly if you think about like the movie it, it goes down some pretty ridiculous roads to get him out of these pickles let's say uh but it is an incredibly satisfying movie to watch it is so much fun to watch as well and like if this movie's well over two hours as well but it felt like half that i had really really enjoyed it i mean let me just put out there that I think these movies actually, in the fact that they are, I think, literally exact opposites, that <laughs> they match together perfectly and yeah. would make an incredible, if you were willing to put in the time, <laughs> double feature. Because um, what you get with Cold Fish that I think we said, but let me say explicitly, is um, normal people put in extreme circumstances to reveal the underlying in you know awfulness of the world right, right. and this movie uh, uses extraordinary circumstances to show even the worst people acting in good ways acting in ways because they just want to defend this hapless idiot charming nice you know in all ways a good guy but like cannot figure out what the fuck is going on. This is definitely a movie where the audience is like 50 steps ahead of this dude at all times. And yet I'm never like, God, fuck, come on, man. Like I, I'm never mad at him, but I'm always like, Oh, yep. I see where this is going. And he does not, he does not see where it's going. <laughs> and, and, and yet through simply having these relationships and having people who know deep down that he is good and they're not willing to see him get, uh, crushed by a system that the the system thinks it's picked the perfect patsy and they haven't because he's actually no one who knows him can believe he's capable of this yeah. thing that that alone is so compelling and even even the people who end up selling him out right like his co-worker yeah. ends up selling him out it's done in a way that's clearly like i don't really have a choice here so i still want you to get away but I'm not gonna like break through the barricade <laughs> for you. Sorry, you know. And I, I don't know. It's it's like it is again. Things escalate in such a way in Cold Fish that immediately you know it's not real, but you follow it anyway. I, I at no point in Cold Fish was like, well, this is just a this is just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I might I felt like some of the de depiction went too far. Like I don't know that I need to see this, but it wasn't like, well, this isn't just just isn't believable because they've created this reality where you do believe it. That's how it is in this movie. Every time something ridiculous happens to help him, I'm never like, well, fuck you, man. I'm always like, yeah, cool. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like another layer of enjoyment. Um, I, I think, though, that works for me. And I don't know how you feel about this, but like I have a soft spot the same way that I have a soft spot for hopeless, dark, almost cruel films. 
I have a similar soft spot for sentimental movies. And this mm-hmm. movie is dripping with sentimentality. And in fact, the sentimentality of the movie helps you when things happen that might be difficult. Like the fact that one of his helpers, one of his friends, one of his allies is a serial killer who just runs up to people and stabs <laughs> them and says, are you surprised? <laughs> it's which, by the way, is fucking great. But the fact that like they end up on the same team, mostly because this guy wanted to kill someone who wanted to kill our main character, and so yeah. bada bing, bada boom, they're they're going together, and he just finds him interesting and charming, and and honestly, in a way, sees the injustice of what's happening to him, like that he really can't do anything. Um, that is held together by sentimentality. You know what I mean? Like those yeah. moments work because of that sentimentality. And if you don't like that sentimentality or maybe that's not the word you want to use, positivity, whatever it is. Sure. If, if you don't like that, this movie might not work for you. Doug, do you think that's true? Do you think some people might have trouble with this film oh, because I, I it mean, is so saccharine? Uh, look, we're all feeling very cynical and I think rightfully so. Though I will say the fact that this movie takes such a cynical view of the government, which is something right. I think we yes. can all get on board with, yes. means, th- means that its sincerity and sentimentality that comes from that is something that is easier to grasp onto because we're all looking for a little bit of hope in times where we can be just as frustrated with the system, let's say, that, that this character is. He doesn't even realize that he's part of it until he's so deep into it he can't get out of it, which is, again, something that I can really relate to uh, over the last few years. Um, there's a moment in this movie, Liam, I just want to point it out. It, it, it might even not even register for a lot of people watching it, but we have our character who's on the run. He's incredibly vulnerable. Everyone knows what he looks like, and he runs into a security guard while he's peeing on the side of the road. And the security guard initially, he, he's going to arrest him, right? He's like, this is the guy. And he knocks the security guy over and he handcuffs him and gags him in the backseat of this car. And, you know, he's got to, right? Otherwise, he's, he's going to be uh, captured. And then he's in the front seat of the car and he's watching. I think this is the moment where he watches the news footage of his father. And yes, his father, yes. who has complete and total belief that his son is innocent there's not even a question in his mind and he speaks directly to the camera and he's so sure of it and you see this guy uh uh, has an an emotional response and then we see that the security guard also has an emotional response and then it cuts to them talking and at the end of it the the security guard believes him entirely and wants him to get away as well but my favorite thing about it is that one of the things that's reinforced over and over in this is the idea of trust and he's talking about how you got to trust your friends it, you've got nothing left if you don't have that trust and then the, the security he takes the gag out and the guy's like the security guy's like can you take off my handcuffs as well he's like yeah well I, there's trust and then i'm not going to be you know there's going too far <laughs> when, it, when it comes to it i'm not being stupid but i still trust you to this point and the security guard agrees with him what a beautiful oh, moment oh yeah in well this and, movie. and because it represents growth right the movie seriously suggests that what makes him an obvious patsy is the fact that he is so he is the most easily like like the most uh what am I, what is the word i'm looking for uh, gullible. He is the most yes. gullible person in the world. And when he says to the security guard, what the security guard is a representative of, of is the audience going, 
That's right, a- a- uh, Oyagi. You don't have to take his cuffs off. It's nice <laughs> enough that you took the gag off. Let's not be totally, you know, simps here. And I think like it, it, it's so funny because that's what we want. We want him to grow a little bit. We want him to be a little more world knowledgeable because he does seem so out of water at first but he never becomes hard and that i think is part of the hope of the film like he is always in danger and the danger is real the movie doesn't make it out like oh he's going to be fine he could die at any moment they they, that this could be it for him and it's it really was to me amidst all this goofy sentimentality i kept thinking they could still kill him though, and it might yep. be okay. And so the fact that 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 they, I thought that the only way it could end was with him, yes, killing him, one hundred percent. And so like th- to have that kind of feeling, but then also for him to like not become a hard ass, like he is still the good dude that he is. He just gets a little less gullible, you know, a little less silly, not entirely, but just a little less. And that's all the arc you need for that character, because he doesn't have to be some world weary warrior who's learned to fight his <laughs> battles. That's just not what you fucking want. You know what I mean? And he's not a solo guy at the end. Right. right. He still needs other people in his life. Yeah, it's it's very it's very much at odds with the kind of heroic characters that we're used to. I also want to mention this movie is very cinematic. The way yes. that it's structured is in some ways like a book in that it jumps around in time. But like at the beginning of the movie, I felt confused, right? I don't know who these characters are. It feels like it jumps right into their dynamics and then it fills in bits and pieces and then it adds the iconography that's going to become important later. You know, you don't find out that he even worked at like a fireworks factory until like halfway through and then that becomes important. And then by the end of the movie, you're, you're shown something from the very beginning again and now it has an entirely different meaning because yeah. of what you've experienced. I just think that it's a really beautifully structured and made movie. And, uh, yeah. I, and the the shame of this movie is that it's almost impossible to to find. It's yes. not available streaming anywhere. Uh, it's it's no longer in print. I think in any capacity. I had to to. to it took me a long time to track down a copy of it. The the remake, the Korean one from 2018, you can find that all over the place. But boy, considering how this movie is not only great, but also from a director that has, because there's been a recent kind of wide release of Fish Story uh, in like a special effects, uh, sorry, a special features filled Blu-ray, that, that this is a director that a lot of people like. It's a real shame that Golden Slumber is not available to watch on at least some streaming service. Well, I mean, I feel the same way about A Boy and a Samurai, which yeah. everyone who saw it liked it, but it, it, it got wrapped up in all kinds of distribution woes. Um, both of these, both of those movies should, uh, this movie and that movie should be available, and I think people would generally love it. Um, I do think, though, when you were talking about it transferring to Korea, that it was remade in Korea, I do kind of wonder, it's less strong than it is for Cold Fish, right? Because this movie is a universal story, I think. It is very appealing. But right. I do wonder, because of the view of the government, are there things going on here culturally? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of, like, the Japanese government, how recently there's been, a, you know, a turn to the right. I don't know what was going on in 2010 politically, socially, whatever, that might have influenced this movie. Was this... Uh, at all connected to a context? Was this going to have a social impact for people? I mean, thinking about this is also a Japanese movie Mm -hmm. coming out the same year as Cold Fish. How are these movies culturally related to each other or are they just different in every way? You you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just found myself wondering when it was over. I wonder if there's stuff there that I didn't quite get because I'm not 
fully familiar with the socio-political landscape of Japan in 20, I guess I you mean, would actually say 2009 is when yeah. it would matter, you know? I mean, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're running into the same thing with both movies. This is a movie designed to be mass entertainment. So, of course, sure, we're going it's to easier be able to, to connect with. Yeah. It's easier to connect with. And you can kind of see how it could be remade in any. I mean, th- look, the fact is, if you live anywhere, you have a, you should have a healthy distrust of your government. That's just the way you should be uh, if, you're, if you're thinking about how things are running. And I'm sure Korea is exactly the same. Uh, the one thing I wondered about this movie in terms of a remake is. The technology at the center of this is very core to the movie, right? It's a very much the era of kind of flip phones and uh, not necessarily public Wi-Fi. And, you know, the guy buys like a PlayStation Vita and has a TV tuner on it so he can watch the news. There's even part that has like a Sega Dreamcast game that <laughs> affects the plot directly. I just wonder how that sort of thing is going to be transferred. I think it could be doing, done just as well because at yeah. its core, this is almost like a Jason Bourne type movie, right? Someone on the run or like The Fugitive. And you can up... You can change the story to match the technology that has changed as well, but it does mean that the story at its core is going to be very different. It's hard to believe that someone would have not necessarily connected to their long-lost friend of 10 years ago because of things like social media right. and all that yeah. sort of shit. Now, do you think this is the most heartwarming conspiracy film you've ever seen or even exists? <laughs> I can't think of another one that would compare. It's just because like the subject matter is so dark, right? It's not, it's like a, a public execution is what it's about. Yes. Yes. But yeah, and, and not only just like the execution of somebody, of like the president like like the, the prime minister of Japan, just this huge incident, but it's it's not about the the kind of largeness of it, even though we're all constantly reminded. If anything, the thing I I, I laugh at in this movie is how every time he turns on the news it's exactly at the point where the information he needs is being said but you know it does make sense that it would be kind of round the clock if someone killed the the prime minister but um that that it's a we have this vastness in the background but it's really about interpersonal relationships and it's about yeah the the kind of small scale of the people that he runs into i also like the idea that that people are being manipulated by the government but it's not like this thing where everyone he runs into has been controlled for 10 years it's the, the the one of the first people he runs into he goes to his apartment he gets threatened and he doesn't know what to do and he panics and he tries to help him but also knows that if he helps him that he's going to get his ass beat and all right he's very conflicted and then he comes back later in the movie and he's like completely on that guy's side he just it's just that you can't compete with the strength of the government there's just no pushing against it yeah yeah, it's though in this case we see that if you're smart enough and you have enough <laughs> connections, maybe you can do something, which is exactly Yo. the little bit of hope that right now actually does feel very possible. Exactly, one hundred percent. I mean, I I'm seriously considering that we have to show this movie to people. Like, we have to be the ones who get this out to people because I think it does resonate with some of the hope that we're trying to have in the world right now. But I also want to ask you, is it possible, even though you've only seen a few of his movies, that Nakamura does something along the lines of sentimental exploitation? Because I've now seen three of his films, and all three movies feel to me like, uh, honestly, they don't feel different from... um, uh, uh, some of the more extreme Japanese cinema, but instead of it being extreme about sex, violence, gore, whatever it is, it's just extreme heartwarming. I'm gonna, at every chance I can, I'm gonna fucking push it so that you are just overwhelmed with feeling good. And I think the biggest example of that is the one you haven't gotten to see yet. But I just wonder if you think that's a real thing or if I'm like barking up the wrong tree. No, I mean I, that ex- exists in the world, right? Like, I, like the worst. 
uh, traits of like a Spielberg film, right? The kind of cloyingness to it. But the thing about the core of this movie is that it's not saying all people are good deep down. That's no. bullshit. That is that is a total lie, and we know that's a lie, even if we're told that in movies all the time. It's not even saying a lot of people are good. Most of the people believe he's guilty right from the beginning because that's what they're told. But what it's saying is if you are can keep a sense of decency in yourself and create relationships with people that are built on the sense of decency and honesty and trust, that that can come back to you in positive ways, which is a real thing that actually can happen. If anything, 2020 taught me that you have to keep those relationships as close as ever yeah. because they're really all you have because the government is out to get you. It, they are not yeah. there to help you, right? So to me, the, 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 the sentimentality, if it went too far, if it was like, if at the end of the movie, everyone believed that he was innocent because you know one piece of information got out into the world and then suddenly everyone changed their mind on the guy, then it might I might feel a little different. I also feel that little bit of conflict because this is a movie about someone who is wrongfully accused of a terrible crime. And we're in the midst of a world where it's so hard to fight back when, when you are someone who has had a crime committed against you um, and no one believes because of the power of the people that are accusing you. It, it, uh, that, sorry, the power, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to tie this into something a little bit more sensible. It's difficult in a world where people are very rarely wrongfully accused for certain crimes to watch a movie about someone who is transparently wrongly accused for a crime, especially in the, in the uh, face of what we were talking about in the first segment in this, uh, in this episode. I don't think that's true though, Doug, because the thing that whenever people make this where they're like, well, two way street, whatever, whatever, as soon as you apply the logic of power, it is actually not hard to, to see the difference. Exactly. Because Individuals is different. Th this is about, yeah, yeah, 100%. Because yeah. governments accuse people of shit all the time. That is not true. Right. When, 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 when the accusation is coming from someone with power that people are inclined to believe, then you have a right to be skeptical. And yeah. when the accusation is coming from someone who doesn't have that much power, who people are inclined to disbelieve, you should be more sensitive. That is called fucking discernment. The idea that we need one objective approach to all situations situations is a lie yeah. and it's it, it even has an origin within a history of european thought so fuck all that in my <laughs> mind this movie is very much about how you know the movie shows it's almost impossible to trust the media the government the society that you're a part of but if you can have trusting relationships with people you can navigate to some extent and it isn't sentimental about it we're saying the movie is very sentimental however the way it ends is not necessarily like and then he went back to his normal life like no. he's fucked you know what i mean but he's alive and as long as he's alive there is hope and that's the other message of the movie that as there long as he survives he has some hope of something happening this is, we haven't really talked about it, but this is also a movie about nostalgia for the past, and that goes yes. to the the title as well, which is a reference to a Beatles song. They they speak about that song in it, that the idea that Paul McCartney was writing about it in the midst of the Beatles breaking up, and the idea that at that moment, you know, he's looking back to the past and wants the comfort of that past. And but this is also about you know the reconnecting with the people from your past that you have touched along the way. Again, I don't think it's cloying. I think the sentimentality comes from a real sincere place, and it, it's. You know, we're going to talk in just a moment. In fact, we should probably get to it now about which of these two movies are superior. And that's such an impossible thing to talk about because there's so much meat on the bones of both of these movies. There's so much that you can talk about and think about. I think Cold Fish is a more 
difficult movie and not just in terms of subject matter but also in terms of what you're supposed to take away from it this is a very easy watch golden slumbers i could show this to almost anyone and as long as they're okay with reading subtitles they'll get they'll get something out of it and probably enjoy it that said these movies are i think worthwhile and i'll say even good in such different ways that it's very difficult to compare them even though they're both japanese movies about uh about people in trying circumstances in the same year I think you're being very fair. So I'll go ahead and be not fair and say my movie is better. <laughs> I win. Uh, Cold Fish is fine. I'm not going to attack it. But my movie's better. And so I win. And this episode goes to Liam. Uh, I will say that you're likely, listener, able to see Cold Fish while Golden Slumber is not one you're able to see. I, I Hopefully that will change in the near future. And what I will say is because it's so much more difficult to see Golden Slumber, if you get the opportunity, go out of your way to see it. Uh, I'm actually going to seek out and watch the Korean remake. I've heard it's not as good. Uh, that's easy to believe. But uh, I, I, if you uh, can see the original, that's always the way to go. Uh, I have a feeling we're not going to see a remake of Cold Fish anytime soon. But boy, I've been wrong in the past. Maybe I shouldn't make these predictions, Liam. That's fair, Doug. That's fair. Um, I think that wraps up our discussion. I won. Uh, so we can just wrap up the whole episode. Uh, hey, Doug, if people want to know a little more about us and about the Cinepunks Network, where should they go? Well, of course, you can go to Cinepunks.com where you can check out all of the Cinepunks podcasts as well as contributors and articles and reviews and interviews. Lots of great content over at Cinepunks.com. You can follow Cinepunks on most social networks under the name Cinepunks, including on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Do a little search and uh, all the links are over on the Cinepunks website as well. But Liam, if people want to check out more Cinema Smorgasbord, they can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com or follow us on Twitter, Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. This is a podcast that has other podcasts, lots of podcasts devoted to uh, such diverse topics as Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, Eric Roberts, of course, as well as a recently launched podcast delving into the works of Alejandro Jodorowsky, and it's called Jodorowsky. You can check that out. Liam, you can also just check us out individually online. What's the best way for them to do that? Well, they can follow me on Twitter at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. And they can follow you on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. That's right, Liam. <laughs> and you know what? I'm just going to take it away from you. I uh, had a great time talking about these two movies. It's been nice after a few guest-heavy episodes to be able yeah. to get back into talking uh, deep. And, uh, and, and honestly, about two films that I really have a lot of feelings about. And it was nice to be yeah. able to explore those feelings with you. Uh, if you have any feedback, of course, head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Leave us uh, uh, some, uh, well, leave us some comments. We'll, we'll mention on the show if there's anything of note. And of course, please leave us reviews on iTunes. It always helps the show very much. But Liam, it's time to close things up for another week. We're going to be back in the very near future with another festival fave. Good night, everybody. Night. One stores away to get back homeward. One stores away to get back home. Sleep, pretty darling, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby.